welcome to the Backdoor to Monarchy episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hello. We're also here with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello. Hi. Hello. And we are going to talk about rich men this week, because apparently on a money show, this is inevitable on a regular basis. We, we are going to talk about all of the billionaires who have managed to avoid a billionaire tax and why that might be. We are going to talk about Mark Zuckerberg, who's extremely rich and who has pivoted his company. We are going to talk about Elon Musk and Tesla and how his new deal with Hertz might change things around. We're going to talk about, in Slate Plus, we're going to talk about Edward Rogers, who is attempting a very succession-style coup up in Canada. It's all manner of fun and games all coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mark Zuckerberg, thank you very much for rebranding your company and forcing us to talk about what I guess we should now be calling Meta rather than Facebook. Although I suspect that people are still going to call Facebook Facebook, much like they still talk about National Airport. Stacy, give me a quick picture of what did Mark Zuckerberg announce and does it matter? What Mark Zuckerberg announced this week is that Facebook, as he has alluded to several times in the past, is really betting its present and future on the idea of what's called the metaverse. This immersive, experiential, virtual reality, video gamey feeling situation in which all of our quote unquote real life interactions will happen in environments that seem to come more from science fiction than they do the real world. Um, so he's investing a bunch of money into Oculus, which is the sort of headset company that he bought. He's investing a bunch of money into AR, which is augmented reality. And he's saying that this is the the new way that we are going to sort of interact with the world. This is this is going to replace the Internet and apps on our phones. And, and that's his big bet. What does that mean for Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and all of these apps that he's made all of his billions of dollars from? Like, are they just going to keep on going as they already did? Are we going to see any changes to them? I think one of the most interesting questions for me, and this is where my deep skepticism of the idea that any of this is actually going to be interoperable comes from, is 
one, will most people adopt this at the rate that Facebook wants them to or Meta wants them to, right? Like the Oculus headset has been out for a long time. It is a good seller, but you canvas 10 normal looking people not wearing fleeces on the street and you ask them, hey, have you ever used a VR headset? And they're not going to be like, yeah, totally. So the they're going to put themselves in this interesting product cycle where they have to keep doing the thing they're doing now that's, you know, super profitable for them and also aggressively try to drive adoption of entirely different kinds of both hardware and software experiences that most folks have frankly been really skeptical of. Facebook's problem is the problem of so many tech companies over so long, which is that young people don't use Facebook anymore and the brand name is kind of tarnished and trying to pivot to do another thing that's kind of cool and they hope will catch on with young people is a huge gamble that historically doesn't really pay off. Like Microsoft is a good example of a company that like pivoted to not caring about young people at all and adoption and is doing more, you know, like B2B business and has been enterprise and has been successful at it. It's sort of like grew up alongside. But they did buy Minecraft, right? True. But I feel like that's a play on parents. (laughs) (laughs) I just like Facebook has lost the youngs and I don't it doesn't seem like they're going to get them back even if they do something that young people might want to adopt and understand because there are other brands already doing this ahead of Facebook right Stacey like like Roblox we mentioned already every video game company pretty much is is trying to solve this and I also think folks like you know Apple has been very early on really investing in what Felix alluded to, you know, AR augmented reality, the idea that you like look through your phone and it gives you another layer in the reality you're already in, as opposed to being in something that's completely immersive and virtual. Um, I mean, the other thing too is, you know, Emily, you're having internet problems. Like one of the fun things about VR is it's incredibly bandwidth intensive. Right. Anything where you're like fully experiential, I'm looking around and I'm surrounded by a tropical island, but I'm actually still in my living room. You are not going to get that experience on 4G, my man. (laughs) It's just that's not a thing that's going to happen. So how they're going to solve that ongoing problem of hundreds of millions of people around the world barely even having any kind of Internet access, I think, is also kind of scary when when I think about the, the techniques they've used in the past. Yeah, I think a lot of this is really contingent on widespread availability of 5G. And I have to say I'm a 5G skeptic. I'm I'm not convinced that that is going to exist in the world wherever you walk and wherever you want to be. What I do think is going on here is that we're seeing something incredibly consistent with what Facebook has been from the very beginning, which is a company absolutely obsessed with growth. Growth at all costs. Growth is the only thing that matters. Famously, in the early days of Facebook, there was this growth team, which basically ran the company. And whatever the growth team wanted, the growth team got. And if it wasn't what the growth team wanted, it never happened. And it worked. Facebook grew incredibly fast. And when the Facebook app growth looked like it might slow down, like, you know, once you had like 100% penetration in the United States and that kind of stuff, they decided they were going to grow another way by buying Instagram. And then they grew by buying WhatsApp. And the one thing that Facebook has always wanted, and Mark Zuckerberg has always wanted, and Sheryl Sandberg has always wanted, is 
where is the astonishing future growth going to come from? And this, to me, is entirely like in line with that. They know that there's no more major acquisitions that they would be allowed to do. You know, both the U.S. and the European antitrust authorities would just squash that in a heartbeat. They tried to do this Libra e-commerce cryptocurrency thing that fell flat on its face and they realized they weren't going to get any massive growth from that. And so now they've decided they're going to build something else. And the great thing about building something rather than buying something is that the antitrust authorities can't stop you from building something. They've already bought Oculus. That's in the past. No one's going to unwind that Oculus acquisition. And so they're like, our future growth is going to come from the metaverse. Now, I don't believe that growth story about the future i don't think i think with stacy i i'm i'm with you on this one i'm skeptical that they're gonna see the kind of growth from the metaverse that that mark zuckerberg claims to be betting his company on but i i also think he has no choice i think that if he really wants growth at all costs despite the fact that he's already a you know massive in you know globe-spanning company and he still wants to get bigger then it's this or nothing, so he chose this. Yeah, I think that's right. They're not allowed to buy their way or acquire their way out of the situation they're in. They, they had to create something. They have no real track record of creating anything besides Facebook initially. They haven't really well, do you remember the Facebook phone? Yeah. They, yeah. they tried. They've tried. They've, you know, but I think the, the weird thing to me here is that this is exactly what you what you don't need to do. If you're Mark Zuckerberg and you have control of your company, and we will talk a little bit about what that means in Slate Plus with the with the with what's going on with Rogers Communications in Canada. But he has complete control of the board, he has complete control of the company, and he is not beholden to outside shareholders who are saying you need to keep on growing or I'll you know, sell my stock or whatever. Like he can do what he likes. Why does he feel like he needs to grow? Is he not big enough already? Why can't he, you know, concentrate on the incredible problems that we have learned so much about within his company that have emerged over the past few weeks, first from the Wall Street Journal and then from everyone else on the planet? Um, why can't he really try and fix everything that's broken with Facebook rather than spending a huge amount of bandwidth and and executive time pivoting to some pipe dream. One thing I've always found fascinating about engineering cultures is nobody likes to fix bugs, but everybody likes to build new things, right? And it is really boring, frankly, and and this is like a, an intensely wide widespread perception at, at, in lots of types of corporate cultures and tech that I've interacted with to be told that, no, 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 you have to slow down because this one thing over here isn't working properly. And I do think that their reaction to the most recent set of you know, whistleblower documents is revealing in that sense, because this is not the first document up by any means. We've had various other things come out about, you know, genocide in Myanmar, <laughs> what's happening with Indian elections, the the complete lack of scalability in terms of being able to moderate various kinds of local languages. So it's not that Facebook was kind of coming into this unaware 
internally, externally, that they had a bunch of things they could be working on to sort out. It's just that it's very hard to reconcile, like do the fundamental infrastructure stuff to kind of keep people safe, even if it's much less glamorous and the press is still going to be mad at you, even if you think you're trying really hard versus we're going to do a big, shiny, incredible rebrand and we're going to get wall to wall coverage from every single media company in the entire world who, and we're going to make them think about the future for a second versus that thing that everybody's been doing, which is reminding us that we made mistakes before. I don't think it's even only tech culture. I'm, now I'm thinking about politics and like the impetus to build the new bridge instead of fixing all the old bridges that are crumbling. It's very, it feels very similar. Shiny is shiny. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, the same thing that you see at art museums. They're much more likely to do a massive capital campaign to build a sexy new wing designed by Stephen Hall than they are to invest in conservation efforts for their permanent collection. Sometimes the future is really just pretending that the past didn't happen. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So enough about Mark Zuckerberg. Let's let's talk about Mark Zuckerberg. He has actually paid a decent amount of tax. Um, when Facebook went public, he paid like a billion dollar tax bill, but he has made much much more than that. And he has paid no tax on most of the money that he's made in his life. If you think of the money that he's made in his life as being the value of his stock in Facebook. And this is true for like most of the big name billionaires that come to mind these days, whether it's Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, the, the money they make is generally untaxed. Even Warren Buffett is the same way. And so the question then arises, if the government wants to pay for big social infrastructure and spending bills, rather than just borrow the money, doesn't it make sense to tax the very rich? And if it does make sense to tax the very rich, that would like reduce inequality, redistribute a bunch of wealth and pay for a bunch of programs that the government wants to do. 
you know, win, 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 we should tax the wealthy rather than just the people with high incomes. And so this week, Senator Ron Wyden um, came out with a plan that would do that, basically ask the likes of Mark Zuckerberg to pay capital gains tax on their capital gains, whether they'd sold their stock or not. And this lasted, I think, about six hours before Senator Joe Manchin decided he didn't want to do it, and so it died. My theory is that a wealth tax is basically a step too far. And this wasn't technically a wealth tax. It was just a capital gains tax. But it's a step too far. And for weird sort of cultural reasons, it's going to be really, really hard to get any kind of thing looking that looks like that through America's Congress, because this is America, goddammit. I thought it was more like, and, and jump in if I have this wrong, but basically the concept of taxing gains in your stock that you haven't sold yet is like too hard for people to 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 do. Like that's would seem like the stumbling block was just like, it's just too hard. It's ridiculous. We can't do it because it's hard. And we're instead going to raise think, taxes I, I on just regular millionaires. Hard. If we, if you look at the proposal that Wyden came that Wyden Club published, and it was a very detailed, it was a hundred and seven page bill, and there was like this big long seventeen page explanation of how it worked. Like it's really quite easy. Anyone, any of us can do it. To look at like what are the unrealized capital gains on your stock market portfolio. Like if you have a stock market portfolio, there's a very good chance that like you can just log onto your brokerage account and it will tell you to the nearest dollar what the unrealized capital gains are. And then you just take that number and you multiply it by 23.8% and boom, that's how much you owe in taxes if you are a billionaire or if you have more than $100 million of income. Now, there might be ways to hide, you know, to, to avoid some of those taxes or, you know, in, in a legal way. But in theory, at least for those liquid assets that you needed to pay tax on that year, I don't think it's that hard to do. I mean, whenever somebody is like, it's too hard, so I'll spend my money going to Mars instead, I'm like, let's talk about the relative complexity of having an army of lawyers and accountants to figure this out versus like literally trying to fly to another planet, right? It's it, it's up there with the rhetoric that, yes, yes, I will pay more taxes if the money were better spent. Like, <laughs> sure. Would you... Like what is what is this ideal perfect allocation of resources with which you approve, you know that you want the the government to act like a donor advised fund that you are going to specifically sign off on the individual bridges that that they want to spend your taxes on? It's just the sums involved here are so wild, and you know I saw some data that came out either yesterday or today today Friday about like there were more than a hundred new billionaires added. <laughs> During the past 18 months when so many people were losing jobs and so many people were trying to figure out just how to survive. And so this this idea that doing something that would take um, an amount of money away that is not spendable by anybody anyway, in any realistic way, even if we did fly to Mars, is you know, like a moral outrage is is a position I, 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 as a person, cannot understand. It might not be a moral outrage. I think the more um, germane argument against it is that it's a 
constitutional outrage. And we've talked about this on, on the pod with Anna Shemansky, who was a great, great fan of this constitutional argument against the wealth tax, which is actually a real argument. A, a wealth tax on its face would be unconstitutional. A wealth tax of the type that Elizabeth Warren had proposed would probably be unconstitutional. I don't understand how it would be unconstitutional. Like, I pay my property tax. Could you d- explain more how it's unconstitutional? Because I do not understand how it's unconstitutional. Okay, I will explain how it's unconstitutional. Property taxes are state taxes. They're fe- they're not federal taxes. States can do what they like, basically, in terms of taxation, but the federal government can't. The federal government is constrained by Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, which bans any capitation or other direct tax, basically, unless you are taxing the number of people in the state, which makes no sense at all. Um, and that includes income tax. It's also unconstitutional, which is why the Congress implemented the 16th Amendment that allowed an income tax. Like an income tax would not be constitutional unless it was for the, it were it not for the fact that the 16th Amendment came along and said, you can do income taxes. And the 16th Amendment basically allows income taxes, but it doesn't allow wealth taxes. That's the general consensus on this one. So you can get wealth taxes at the state level. You can't get them at the federal level. Now, the good news about the widened version of this is that it wasn't actually a wealth tax. It was an income tax. It was a tax on capital gains, which count as income. Whether that argument would pass muster with the current Supreme Court, we don't know. But certainly, like, not all billionaires would pay this tax, right? If you own Revlon, say, and you've lost billions of dollars over the past few years, but you're still a billionaire, then you have no capital gains and you and you owe no tax. It's not a tax on the wealth that you have. It's just a tax on the capital gains. And it would have been like a massive, massive tax. Um, you know, it would be effectively 23.8% of the net worth of all of the big entrepreneurial billionaires like Elon Musk one-off big tax, which they'd pay over five years. And then every year after that, they'd pay 23% of their annual capital gains. Um, That's way bigger than what Elizabeth Warren was proposing, which was just like 2% per year. Well, now I feel like I do understand then how it's unconstitutional. I don't understand how billionaires are ever going to pay more taxes in the United States. And I'm feeling like I agree with Stacey that this is incredibly frustrating and upsetting that we have these uh, essentially a super class of 700 billionaires, mostly men who don't have to, who pay less tax than I do. Like it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And what the Biden administration has done is basically say they're going to raise taxes on, on the working rich. I guess that's what we call now these, the millionaires, um, who, people who make a lot of money, the people working str- rich. Str- struggling by on $10 million yeah, a year. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and just the billionaires just get a pass. It's just, it's crazy. And, and judging by my Twitter feed, people think this was a solution because I said, oh, the billionaires aren't going to be taxed. And people told me I was a gaslighting liar because no, don't worry. People with incomes over, I think, 10 million will be taxed. But actually, actually, no, the billionaires still get away kind of scot-free here. Yeah, because because the billionaires don't have incomes of over 10 million. Yeah. A lot of them have incomes of like zero or one dollar or something. And they, if they need spending money they just borrow against their stock it's this loophole the one thing i will say is that 
the United States is hardly unique in this respect. There are few, if any, countries in the world where billionaires pay a lot of tax. Billionaires, by their nature, are good at locating themselves in places where they don't have to pay tax. And really, America's the only country which even has a chance of being able to tax billionaires because it taxes people on their global income. But billionaires are politically powerful, and they have expensive lawyers, and they're good at making sure that they don't pay taxes on their wealth. And, you know, you get people like Peter Thiel creating you know, $5 billion IRAs and all of the, all of this kind of thing. In an ideal world, I think, yes, the billionaires would pay a lot of tax. I just don't think that we have ever lived in that ideal world. I don't think that that exists in any country anywhere. And while it was lovely for a brief shining five seconds on like Wednesday of this week to think that Ron Wyden might have come up with like a vision for that world, uh, yeah, I'm. You know, I don't think anyone is entirely surprised that it didn't come to pass. Isn't that a recipe for people to take out the guillotines? Like, <laughs> if you if these people are actually untouchable. Well, I believe, but that's exactly what they did, right? It was called the election of Donald Trump. That you know, you can you can draw a straight line from the 2008 financial crisis to the 2016 election and in a, and like the anger that you saw in 2016 and the continued popularity of Donald Trump I think is definitely related to it, it, you know it's it's definitely guillotine adjacent yeah it's just not in a, in a direction that people who like to think of themselves as progressive would approve of but I I, I no I, I completely agree with Felix right I think that the the degree of societal unrest in the United States, it's its its highly commented upon, but it's an under-examined secular trend that some politicians are better at writing than others. And and Felix, you had another kind of theory in your, in your newsletter this week that this is just the reason the billionaire tax didn't work is because we, the U.S. just isn't into the socialism of it all which is sort of a separate thing. So, yeah, it's a separate thing, but it's a real thing, that it's like on some deep level un-American. Um, the person who wrote famously from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs was Karl Marx, right? The idea that you tax people according to their ability to pay is on some level a pretty Marxist idea, mm. right? It's not just a, uh, you know, the the right wing, certainly in America, has always loved this idea of a flat tax. And you remember, like, was it Herman Cain with his 999 plan or whatever? Like, um, the idea being that everyone should be treated equally, no matter how much money they have. And the idea that, no, we should treat the very rich differently and get more money out of them because they are the very rich and they have more ability to pay is a Marxist idea. And we are not in America a Marxist society. And although the opinion polls are showing more and more people, especially younger people, self-identifying as socialists, that's certainly not true of the United States Senate. That's certainly not true of people like Joe Manchin. And what Joe Manchin said when he killed this idea was, I don't want to single out the billionaires for higher taxes. Like that just feels unfair. And that and on some level, I think that's that's exactly what we're seeing here is that the broad mass of like middle America, centrist America, you know, non-progressive America 
just feels that there is something unfair about taxing billionaires. And I don't, but I'm not really that American. I've only been an American for, you know, a few years. <laughs> so then it feels like we've basically created a backdoor to monarchy. We're not supposed to have kings or queens and such. But I mean, if we have 700 people that are above tax policy, then yeah, we do. But that's exactly what I mean about underanalyzed, right? Which is that one of the strangest things for me about moving to the U.S., given the the ideals and principles upon which it was founded, was like, on the one hand, the adulation of, you know, a class of politicians that were basically royalty for especially if you read Vanity Fair, as well as this idea that there's a class of people who just because they were good at making money should be allowed to infinitely make money and questioning that is wild and somehow suggesting that, you know, cool, also it would be good if because of the ways in which you benefited in order to be able to build that money, like from, you know, tax subsidies on your HQ in New York or Seattle or Austin or using the social safety nets because you are not offering paid leave of any kind, that that's something that you, you know, put back into a functioning capitalist system is a is a bridge too far in in kind of a, a lot of the rhetoric here. And like I have always just like as a person who didn't experience that in other places have been baffled by it. To be clear, in the case of the richest person in the world, Elon Musk, he didn't just benefit from the basic societal affordances that, it, that America gives entrepreneurs. He actually got hundreds of millions of dollars in direct federal loans and grants to, to build Tesla and, and SolarCity. And not to mention the fact that SpaceX, his other company, where he has, you know, $40 billion worth of stock, is, you know, it basically has one client, which is the American government. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, let's keep talking about Elon Musk since he's not only rich, but he is selling 100,000 Teslas to Hertz. This is great for Tesla, obviously. He's selling them basically at full price. It is so good for Tesla, in fact, that it managed to push up the market capitalization of Tesla in one day by 2x the market capitalization of Ford, um, pushing Tesla into the trillion-dollar club. Well done, Elon. Um, it's also good for Hertz, which is, um, going to be 20% electric pretty soon. Yay. And it is also weirdly good for Uber. This is something that only came out a day or two later that half of these cars, you're not going to be able to rent just by turning up to your local Hertz 
short store and renting a car, half of these cars are going to be reserved for Uber drivers because in a bunch of jurisdictions, Uber is being forced to go all electric. And in fact, Uber has said, I think nationwide in the United States is going to be entirely electric by 2030. And so that's a problem for Uber because most Uber drivers don't necessarily have the means to be able to buy an electric car themselves. And so what they're saying is, well, if you can't buy a car, then you can just rent it from Hertz. So here we have in one great vat of a, you know, one week news cycle we have tesla and hertz and uber all getting intermingled in this one news story yay oh shout out to the autos reporters good luck this is a bit of a wild week for y'all it's a really interesting story i mean i think it really signifies that electronic cars are going to be um it's 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 a mainstream thing now and tesla is going to be the brand as it, we already kind of knew that Tesla was going to be the brand for electric electric cars, but this it deal is seems at the to me moment. I don't it. think this is a foregone conclusion, right? Like, um, I if you look at the latest version of the Build Back Better bill, um, there's an extra four and a half thousand dollars of tax breaks, basically for people who are buying f- electric Fords or other. Um, electric cars made in the US by unionized labor, which obviously wouldn't include Tesla, which does not have unionized labor. Um, And people are really excited about the Rivian truck. They're excited about the Ford F-150 Lightning. They're excited about the Ford Mach-E. The number of Porsche Taycans sold has already um, exceeded the number of Porsche 911 sold this year. Um, And... You know, while it is definitely true that Tesla has a head start, it is not entirely obvious to me how much that, how valuable that first mover advantage is, especially when the Tesla charging network becomes interoperable with all of the other chargers. And at that point, I think there is a slightly more level playing field than you might think. And Tesla is certainly the number one player in the market today and will be for some years to come. But I don't think we can just sort of tie it up in a bow and say, well, Tesla's won and everyone else has lost. I mean, I would push back a little bit on that. I don't think Tesla has created a brand name for itself that is extremely powerful, sexy. I mean, it has incredible brand recognition. There's no other new auto manufacturer I I can think of that has been able to pull off the same since maybe like Kia or maybe Hyundai. I don't know. I live in a pretty affluent area and I I see Teslas all the time. When I when I talk to people, people are excited about Tesla. When I talk to people about this deal, they were like, "Ooh, I'll definitely go to Hertz and I want to try I want to try one of these cars." Like I just think it has a real lead on the marketing brand piece and and that's not to be discounted. I I wouldn't discount it, but what I would say is I would I want to jump on a word that you used, which is like affluent, right? Which is Electric cars will succeed when you don't have to be willing to spend above average money for brand and above average money relative to the quality that you're actually getting. Like my friends who are very into cars, and there are a lot of them all around me, um, what, you know, there are some Tesla drivers within there. But one of the things that they're talking about all the time is that like from if you are a real car aficionado, and even if you're a real electric car aficionado, there's a lot about like tex- Tesla's quality, like the finish, 
some of the features that appeal to you if you're if you are a gadget person but that are insufficiently interesting if you are a real car person and even if you are like coming at this from an electric car perspective. Um, and Felix's point about the the chargers is is really really key, right? Like when I lived in Silicon Valley and it was like every person around me was literally buying a Tesla or a Porsche depending on their bonus that year. Um, one of the big things that was appealing was so many of these tech companies would offer you free or aggressively subsidized charging so that you would park your car when you got to work and you would charge your car for free and then you would drive it home because the rate of adoption of electric cars in certain communities far outstrips the mass availability of places to charge it, even if you have a garage at home. I, I think you're absolutely right, Stacey. The panel gaps and the basically the, the, the whole value proposition of the Tesla is like, this is a really sexy computer on wheels and then we've built like this kind of cheap and shoddily constructed box around the computer but hey look at the amazing screen which does a million things um and what you care about is the amazing screen and the great acceleration and the and the electric bit and and like car people kind of care about the box and often really dislike the screen i've i um have driven an electric car with like acres of screen in front of me and I hated it. And I don't want to be like hunting around on the screen to work out what button I want to press. And I think there is a lot of um, opportunity space out there for other manufacturers to make other cars and possibly cheaper cars. As you say, like we need to have broad adoption here um, that don't feel quite as gadgety. And we and and you know I I definitely agree with Emily that the Tesla has done an amazing job in terms of marketing and um, and desirability and a lot of people want still want to buy a Tesla, but the electric car future is going to be a diverse and vibrant future with lots of players. And the only question is really like, what is the market share of Tesla going to be? It's not going to be a hundred, you know, it's going to be less than a hundred and who knows how, how big or who's, how small we're still in very, very early days. We just don't know. Tesla could be Mercedes or Porsche or Tesla could be like Ford or something. I will, I, but I don't think Tesla's going to be Ford, right? Because Ford is trying to be Ford, right? Like the Ford F-150 Lightning, like has blown people's minds <laughs> in terms of appealing to the aesthetic of people who like Ford trucks, but delivering on electric performance. And, you know, the Tesla aesthetic is very specific and it's, it is, it is not for everybody, particularly with some of the quality control issues that they have, which is not to say Ford has not had its own quality control issues. But I don't think that the way we move forward with mass adoption of electric is by like optimizing for people who exclusively like the shiniest, gadgetiest version of a thing. I think the way we move forward with electric, and that's what's so interesting about this credit, is by making it available at every price point to people who want to get from point A to point B. But back to the Hertz and Uber, like the thing that interests me is like, what does this mean for Uber? If the Uber, like we, I think we've all more or less agreed that the Uber Tesla dream of self-driving cars is not going to be here for the foreseeable future. Um, you are going to have to get human beings 
leasing these cars from 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 Hertz and um, sitting behind the wheel and driving around. And I just can't get the math straight in my head. Like, I understand that the amount they spend on refueling is going to be lower because it costs less to recharge than it does to fill up with gas. But these, you know, if you're, pay- if you're paying like hundreds of dollars a week just to rent your car, that changes the economics of driving for Uber really substantially. And I suspect that people aren't going to want to do that. Well, the so one of the things that I've been looking at in like the Lyft and the Uber app is they're really trying to push what they're calling green rides. So, you know, like you can you can choose whatever they're calling it now, like the the X in the Uber context and the XL. And then there's one called Comfort and then there's green and Uber, as it has done in the past, looks like it's subsidizing the cost of the green relative to some of the other options. But, you know, according to a Wall Street Journal story that I was reading, um, they're paying a dollar more for every to every driver of an electric car per ride. So there's some they are they're trying to address those mechanics, but like one dollar. <laughs> like I, I I don't know how that works out to your point in terms of the maths involved here. The clear winner here seems to be maybe Hertz that just came out of bankruptcy and got a lot of press that it wouldn't have in any other universe um, for doing this, right? I mean, and and has differentiated itself as a rental car company in, in a world where rental cars are not really that big of a thing anymore, really struggling, especially since the pandemic, to stay relevant. Yeah, they're going public soon on the NASDAQ. Again. Uh, again. <laughs> so well well done, Hertz, for your IPO number two. All right, I think it's time for a numbers round. Stacey, do you have a number this week? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, my number my number is twenty four percent, which is how the amount that a Canadian material science firm that trades under the ticker MMAT but is called Meta Materials <laughs> <laughs> rallied on Friday because people were like, "Oh, Meta, that must be." a Facebook thing somehow. Uh, so it was like one of the most actively traded stocks on on Friday. And like I think the volume was like more than a million shares traded hands before people were like, oh, wait, never mind. Metals. Yes. Did, did you see the volume on. on Meta, which is an ETF? Yes, the ETF. Because, <laughs> because it's an ETF, the price didn't go up. The volume went up like a gazillion percent. It was crazy. People, the the new ticket is not Meta. The new ticket is MVRS, which I don't even know what people are going to call it. Movers? Mervers. <laughs> Emily, what's your number? My number is cheerful. It's $10,000. That is the amount of money that Spanx CEO Sarah Blakely gave each of her employees, along with two first-class tickets to anywhere in the world they want to go this week. Um and there's a great little Instagram video that uh, that you can go and look at. Just the pure joy. It's mostly a, the Spanx workforce. It's mostly women, um, and it's just a delightful, a delightful thing. I, I'm I'm struggling to have it to feel a downside to this because they the news the news here is that Spanx got a lot of money from Blackstone, sold themselves to Blackstone, and yeah, you should go watch the video. $10,000 seems great. Anyone who wants to give me two, <laughs> two, two first-class air tickets to anywhere in the world is just such a wonderful, like, ultra-lux 
brilliant yeah. idea. They're, they're like Delta Airlines, I think, also. So it's not like yes, Southwest. <laughs> oh, it has to be on no. Delta? <laughs> yeah, but first class. Because if someone gave me two not first class plane tickets, I'd be like, gee, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Delta One or whatever it's called. Yeah, their first class is nice. Yeah. Plus, and then you got the cash to spend too, you know? It's like, yeah. it's it's a good gift. She knows what she's doing. Is it taxable? Um, yeah, that's the question I want to know. Like, oh. if I if I take ten thousand dollars worth of first class air, airfare, do I now need to pay income tax on that? Oh, you're probably gonna. I bet you don't get the whole ten thousand dollars in cash. Yeah, that I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask any accountants who are listening to this how they may have structured this. Is this a gross up <laughs> situation? What's happening? <laughs> is is there is there going to be a tax gross up? Spanx. We the the, the important questions. The audience wants um, to know. I, I have a question for um, Stacy in the form of a number, but I guess the number first. the the, the number for, The number is one hundred and twenty four thousand four hundred and fifty seven point zero seven, which such is a specific number. <laughs> which is the number of ETH that Punk nine 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 eight sold for. Um, and this is this is all to do with something called a flash loan it wasn't a real sale from one person to another sale there's this wonderful thing you can do um in the crypto world which is called a flash loan where you basically borrow money for like an hour and a half and you can do what you like with it because according to the smart contract the person who lent the money is guaranteed to get it back so they're not really taking any credit risk um and so what this guy did is he borrowed basically 532 million dollars took his crypto punk sold it to himself transferred it back to himself and then paid the 532 million dollars back just to be able to get on top of some like leaderboard and say hey i have a 532 million dollar crypto punk on some level, it's silly. On some level, it's funny. On some level, it's like a weird flex. But the question I have for Stacy is, how much did it cost? I want to know about these flash loans, because we know that there was like $800 in gas fees. But presumably, there was an actual cost to borrowing the money on top of that that was a lot more than $800 or no? That's actually one of the things that we're trying to report out at the moment. The The invisibility of that flash loan fee is something that I find really interesting for two reasons. One is I have had a hunch, and I am not alone in this, that these sorts of trades happen fairly frequently, usually not at the $500 million level, and that people are using it to like inflate the prices of NFTs. And then the second person who buys it, they're like, well, it sold for $400,000 before, or $500,000 seems, like seems like a bargain. Um, and two, I, I confess to not 100% understanding what the upside is to providing flash loans if there isn't some kind of margin that is attractive. You know, it's like, okay, it's going to be lower than if you had to, you know, actually take on credit risk. But I still want to know, like, what that percentage is that folks are making. Yeah, I mean, no one no one loans out $500 million for free, even if it's only for an hour and a half. Like, people are going to want to get paid for that, right? Yeah, exactly. And, like, what, what makes that worthwhile? So, okay, Stacey, as, as the managing editor for crypto or bloomberg news um your your assignment this week is to come back next <laughs> week and tell us what is the interest rate on a flash loan i'm genuinely interested and Love i know you to are have too. multiple 
people giving me homework. Um, yes, I will. I will come back next week with some more insights on this. Uh, brilliant. Um, so I think that's it. Unless you're a Slate Plus listener, I hope you're a Slate Plus listener because we're going to talk about success. Well, we're not really going to talk about succession. We're going to talk about something succession adjacent, which is the Rogers family in Canada. Like when we had Ed Lee on the show talking about all of the media families that um, Succession was based on, I can tell you that the name Rogers was not a name that appeared. But now, oh boy, it turns out to be like the most Succession-esque family in the world. We're going to talk about what's going on with them in Slate Plus. But other than that, thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much to Shane Roth for producing. This show was a bear of a show to produce for various boring technical reasons she is a superstar um send your emails in to slate money at slate.com and tell shana how wonderful she is um and we will be back on monday with more slate money succession with matt haber and then the following saturday with more slate money 